If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 5. We'll soon be reading in verse 11. If you don't have one with you, you can borrow one from us. The pocket of the pew in front of you will have a Bible, and you can find Matthew chapter 5 on page 760 of that Bible. In the modern world in which we happen to live, light and salt are ubiquitous. They're, they're so normal that we often complain of having far too much of them, not too little. We're able to stay up late into the night so that whether by work or by play, come morning we need to buy blackout shades to keep the light at bay. Processed food tends to lack enough flavor, so we add copious amounts of salt to it. If you've been to McDonald's recently, you realize our burgers have more of a salty taste than a beefy taste, and that apparently goes over well for some. A long time ago, both of those things were immensely precious and immensely valuable. Today, we have them in so much excess that we use them to be blacked out. We use them to, to act as fillers for other things. But again, for the better part of human history, they were incredibly valuable. Salt was so valuable that it was traded at times and in places ounce for ounce with gold. This is why we have the saying, he's not worth his salt, because people used to be paid in salt, not as an insult, but literally, that was for you, I knew I was going to get her, yes, not not as an insult to them, but to actually pay them, and people would accept that, and if they weren't worth their salt, then they wouldn't be paid their salt. This is the same word that we get the word salary from, is from the word salt. It was an incredibly important commodity back in the day. Light was also precious. Probably even more so because it was something that we couldn't necessarily get our hands on. The setting of the sun was the finisher of the day. At that time, all work must cease. Candles and fires provided some light, but not nearly enough. We often hear it said that we have more computing power in our phones today than the shuttle that went to the moon. In the same vein, I would take a guess to say that we have more lighting power in our home than the vast majority of villages and cities had even two to three hundred years ago. And I'm not talking about like Clark Griswold's house at Christmas. I mean like a normal everyday person's house. They were precious commodities. Jesus is going to move away from the Beatitudes now and move toward the metaphors of salt and light. And certainly it speaks of our value. Such metaphors are helpful to us because they do imply that we are valuable. But why are we considered valuable? Why does Jesus speak this way? Why use these metaphors for us? And indeed, even asking those questions, knowing that this is a super well-known passage, many of you already have answers to those questions. You know what Jesus says here. You can probably get close to reciting it by heart, but it would do well to not necessarily reinvent the wheel then, to not go over all of the things that it could be, only to knock them down, but always to simply reconsider what Jesus says here again today and see what we might be able to glean from it. So let us turn. We'll begin reading in Matthew 5, 11, and we'll read through verse 16. If you would read with me. Matthew 5, verse 11. We hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are you when others revile you, And persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light in all the house." In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of our God. Four things to put before you this morning. The first of those would be that Jesus gives us a promise. Jesus gives us a promise. You might hear that first word that I read, blessed, and wonder why we didn't include these in the verses from last week where every single verse began with blessed. These were the Beatitudes. The reason is, even though it begins with blessed, it seems like it, it doesn't really fit with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes have a very structured way of going about their business, and this is not structured the same way. The Beatitudes speak of, of abstract groups, the poor in spirit, the meek in the mourning, but Here, Jesus switches to that second person plural. He points directly at his disciples and says, you. It's much more personal. Besides that, verses 11 and 12 seem like they're simply an expansion on verse 10. Talking about those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, now he talks about how you will be persecuted. And it does indeed need some expansion. After all, it's odd to talk about how happy state of the persecuted are in because they get the kingdom of heaven. Jews didn't see persecution as something that the Messiah would bring. It would have sat very oddly with them. They wouldn't, I don't think, have had a way to kind of think through it. The the Messiah was to come to put an end to persecution and oppression. This was exactly what Moses did to the Egyptians. Moses was the deliverer who was brought up amongst the Egyptians, and their oppression came to an end as God worked through him. And and not just Moses, even as Jesus is being portrayed as a new Moses here, but even Jesus' namesake, Joshua. Joshua entered into the promised land to conquer. He didn't drive his people into the promised land only to let them be oppressed. Jesus was to put an end to Roman oppression. And yet here he is saying, well, no, actually, there's, there's persecution coming for you. This is something of a promise that to uphold the name of Jesus Christ, to be his people, to follow in his steps, is to lead to persecution. It is something of a reward from the world. It's not a great deal, but it is what it is. But the persecution that's here is also kind of interesting because it's not the type of persecution that naturally comes to mind when we think of people who are persecuted. Typically, when we think of persecution, we think of people in the first century who suffered under Nero, or we think of what the Roman Catholic Church did to Martin Luther in seeking to put an end to his life, or even in more recent times, people like Bonhoeffer, or anyone, basically, who lives in the Middle East under very heavy Muslim rule. We know that their lives are continually in jeopardy. We know that by coming to Christ, they have put themselves in the crosshairs, not only of the government, but of of religious authorities, just of, of people. But it's interesting that in these verses, 
giving your life as a martyr is not the first thing that Jesus mentions, nor is it the last thing that Jesus mentions. It is highly unlikely that anyone in here, at any point in time in their life, is for their faith going to have to put their life on the line and decide whether or not they are going to be Christian or they are going to lose their life. Praise be to God for that. Nevertheless, persecution will come. The persecution is being spelled out for us. There is reviling and speaking and uttering all kinds of evil against us. This this idea of, of words being used against us, of reviling being used against us, and that being a real form of persecution is true and good, and we ought to make sense of it. Because after all, the the thing that we're fighting is not a physical war. We don't expect to have physical persecution all the time used against us, but because we are fighting for hearts and minds, we're fighting for the truth. We're fighting to uphold the goodness of Jesus Christ against other gods. We would expect that because we use words for these kinds of battles, the words would be used against us. And even as we talked about last week, the persecution that we suffer is not just any general persecution, but it's persecution for righteousness' sake. Jesus clarifies what righteousness' sake is. He says it's quite clearly on my account. It's for his sake. We might be in the battleground of truth, and the people who fight against us do not fight fairly. They do not fight by the standards of righteousness. We need to understand That for us to truly fall into these categories, for us to truly be blessed when we're persecuted, means for us to be blessed when we're persecuted for the sake of Jesus. Jesus isn't simply calling us to tell people the truth. That in and of itself is not enough. People who hold signs that speak of how God hates certain groups of people who commit certain kinds of sins people who hold signs that say that abortion is murder give at best a half-truth. Even though those things might be true in cases, we might understand contextually how that might be right. To provide that truth without the corresponding belief and trust that Jesus Christ is good to forgive sins, that there is forgiveness and grace and mercy in Christ, is not speaking the truth On Jesus' account, you're not repping Jesus if you feel like the work that you were to do is simply to make sure that everyone understands the judgment and hatred and anger and wrath of God. What you are presenting is not the God of the Bible at all. It's not even halfway there. We know that there will be times when we have to do everything we can to make the gospel seem good. We do have to give bad news. We have to make sure that people understand that there is salvation from something, that there is redemption from something, that there is forgiveness from something. It's true, we have to say bad news, but that means we have to give them good news. And we can do everything we can to clear the ground, to make sure that we're not misunderstood. Oftentimes I find myself doing that. I'll I'll say five minutes worth of things I'm not going to say before I say the thing I'm going to say. And it's annoying, but it seems like it's necessary. I don't want people to take me in the wrong way. But you can do all of that. 
You can clear the ground and make sure that everyone understands that God loves people. He wants what is best for them and he wants what is good for them. That there is grace and grace that is greater than any sin. That no matter who or what you have done, no matter the things in your life that you think or have acted upon, that God is faithful to forgive it. You can add all the sugar and the honey that you want to it. But there are times when that pill will be so bitter to swallow that people will simply not keep it down. The medicine of the gospel will not be allowed to do its work. And no matter how nice and how good and how wonderful you make the good news of Jesus Christ be, people will spit that pill back at you and other things will come out with it, reviling and evil. The promise is no matter how nice you are, no matter how good you make the gospel sound, if you do it right, you're still going to be hated. You need to be prepared for this kind of persecution. It's promised to us. But Jesus also promises us something else. You have reason to rejoice and be glad, for you will be rewarded. And Jesus makes an incredibly large claim here. Not only is for his sake, acting on the sake of Jesus Christ, doing things in righteousness. Clearly, those two things are meant to be parallel here. But Jesus' disciples, speaking of him and acting for him, is equated with God's prophets speaking for him. It's an amazing claim. He says, if you go out and you proclaim me rightly, you walk and you suffer according to what I have called you to be and to do, if you do it for my sake, if you suffer these things for my sake, Your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. The prophets were indeed treated horribly. They were slandered, they were mistreated, they were jailed, they were threatened. They did precisely what they were called to do. They went to a people who were wayward and they spoke to them the word of the Lord knowing full well at times that God said those people will not listen. For everyone who has ever had that prophetic call given to them as a missionary from Isaiah 6, it does well to read the rest of those verses. When God tells Isaiah, you're going to go and you're going to preach, but they ain't going to listen. To be a prophet is in good measure to be rejected. To be a disciple is in good measure to be rejected. And yet Jesus says, you should rejoice because there is a great reward for the prophets in heaven. There's a great reward for those who will stand up to such persecution and love Jesus more than their life, love Jesus more than their reputation. So rejoice and be glad. Don't be angry at the world for this. Don't be frustrated as though this is not how things ought to be, but rather rejoice and be glad. Don't worry about the rejection. Rejoice in the promise. Great is your reward in heaven. Secondly, Jesus gives us a warning. He gives us a warning. Metaphors are there so that we would have multiple meanings for these things. And salt, man, salt provides a ton of meaning. Typically, people think of one or two different things that salt is probably used for more than anything else. Scholars, though, are a wise and inventive bunch, and there's been up to a dozen different ideas offered as to what the salt might be referring to here. Typically, salt is thought of as something that either flavors or preserves. 
I'm going to say flavoring could be part of what Jesus means. I have no sort of bad will against that particular interpretation, but I think in light of what we see here, that what Jesus actually means is a preservation, that you are the salt of the earth because you are preserving something in the earth. Let me talk to you about why that is. First, it's obviously something that was used as a preservative back in ancient times. There's every culture, whoever had access to salt used it for this purpose. They found if they put enough salt on something that that thing wouldn't go gross and disgusting. And so they would salt things to keep it fresh so that it would last longer. It would preserve it. And salt is used that way in the Old Testament. Particular usage of that in the Old Testament is very keen, though, and it It's about one particular thing. It turns out that in the ancient time period that we deal with here and then even before this, kings, when they made treaties with one another, would oftentimes sit down and they would eat salted bread. Now, it's not because it was necessarily a treat, but they would eat salted bread because the salt would be a reminder of preservation. They would eat specifically salted bread because they would be reminded that we are to be like salt in this covenant. Neither one of us should break it. We should preserve this covenant. It should go forward as a covenant. So when you make a a treaty or a deal from king to king, the idea of using salt was to, to be a symbol of preservation. We actually find this symbol of salt all the way through the Old Testament. It's a wonderful symbol of preservation in the Old Testament. Leviticus 2.13 says this, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Presumably as a way to show that that covenant, the salt of the covenant, was to be a preserving of the covenant. The offerings that they were to give were to preserve the covenant. And so symbolically, including salt in that would make sense to them. Numbers 18, 19 is even more specific. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. I'm not just asking for a one-time offering, right? I'm saying that this is going to be done perpetually. It's going to be done time and time and time again. Numbers goes on to say this, it is a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord, for you and for your offspring with you. Something we just got done talking about in Sunday school this morning, the covenant that God makes with David when he says, I will make your sons forever after you. I will establish your house and I will establish one of your sons forever upon the throne. Second Chronicles talks about that covenant with David this way. Ought you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship of Israel, excuse me, gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and to his sons by a covenant of salt. Salt preserves the covenant. Salt means that the covenant is to last forever. It was signaling that the treaty that is made will go on forever and ever and ever. And given the fact that Jesus has just mentioned prophets, it means that we are to act like those prophets. That is, as the salt of the earth, we are those who take the preservation of the covenant out to people. What did the prophets do? The prophets were sent by God to go to a wayward people to remind them that this is the covenant that you made with God. God has said he will be good to you if you do this, 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 and this, and that he will judge you harshly and severely if you do these things. Remember these things. Come back to the Lord. Remember the covenant and remember the treaty that he made with you. 
Jesus saying that we are going to be those who do exactly the same. We are going to go out and we are going to proclaim to all of the earth a treaty that God has made with us that in Jesus Christ there is grace and there is forgiveness and there is mercy. Come to him. Be his disciple. Be trained to obey all that he commands. And there will be life. We are salt. We are sent to remind folks that this covenant exists, that it is there for them, and that it is permanent forever. But this comes with a warning. He says, If salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Which is an incredibly weird statement that people have tried to make sense out of for millennium. And I've got news, I'm going to make sense of it for you this morning. So just sit tight. It really doesn't make any sense at all because salt in and of itself cannot lose its saltiness. This is like saying if a circle loses its roundness, right? Well, it's not a circle anymore. It's a square. It's a rectangle. It's something else. People have looked at this and said, this is incredibly strange. I don't know how that's supposed to happen, but it's actually much weirder than that because the word that's used here for losing saltiness is a word that's used often in Greek. It's used often enough. It's not the most popular word, but it's used often enough. And in all of Greek literature, from the beginning of Greek literature to modern day, this word is used, and only in two places in the ancient world is it ever used to mean lose taste. Here in Matthew, and the parallel statement over in Luke. Everywhere else, every other place, it means exactly one thing, and it doesn't mean anything different. Paul uses it. It's used throughout the New Testament. Paul uses it in Romans 1, 22. Let's see if you can catch it. Famous statement. Creation tells us something about God. We have rejected that. And in Romans 1, 22, he says that people claiming to be wise became fools. Same word that's used there, that is used back in Matthew 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The word is actually to be made foolish, which makes less sense than salt losing its saltiness. How can salt become foolish? This is actually the word that we derive the, the English word moron from. Now, it doesn't actually mean what moron means because moron implies somebody who's lacking in intelligence, but wisdom does not have anything to do with intelligence. There are immensely smart people in the world who are incredibly foolish. This is what I think is going on. Scholars are pretty sure that there's an Aramaic word that Jesus used that carried both meanings. That is, this Aramaic word likely carried the idea that, that you could become foolish and also become sort of uh, tasteless. Dull might be the best English word we have, but dull still implies something about intelligence and not about wisdom. Foolishness in the Bible is not just a, a poor managing of life where you just make kind of dumb choice after dumb choice after dumb choice and, and things that are sort of easily passed off and forgiven. But wisdom is a rejection of God's desires and plans and designs for life. This is what the entire book of Proverbs is up to. It's saying, this is what God wants for you, and the wise follow it. To reject that is foolishness. 
And again, the, the idea comes back, and, and Matthew is going to include this in just a couple of verses, which we'll get to when we talk about anger. Foolishness, to be a fool, is to be out of the covenant. It is to reject the covenant. It is to hear what God tells you and say, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to live a life completely separate from that. And so what Jesus seems to be saying here is this. If you are the ones who are going to carry the covenant forward, to bring people into the covenant, how in the world can you live in such a way as though you're out of the covenant? If you are reminding people that this is, this is what God has, has told us, this is what God has called us to, but you don't live in accordance with what God has spoken, how can you possibly take that covenant out to other people? How can salt, a reminder of the covenant, once broken, ever sort of restore people to that same covenant? It doesn't make any sense. How can you proclaim to others a path of life that you yourself are unwilling to walk? God tells us that such a thing seems to be impossible. And notice the warning that comes with it. It is no longer good for anything. It's no longer good for anything. You are not usable to the world, and you're not usable to God. You are good for nothing except to be thrown out, which is almost universally in Matthew a sign of judgment and destruction And to highlight that, he says, and to be trampled under people's feet, to be crushed. If if you are unwilling to be the salt of the earth, if you're unwilling to uphold the covenant in your own being, if you're unwilling to follow the covenant, what good are you? Jesus says you're, you're not. It's a severe warning for us, friends. That if we are going to be the very prophets that are sent out in the world to uphold the goodness of Jesus Christ, we need to do everything in our power to walk in line with it. And I understand that we're not getting very specific as to what God is going to require of us. What does that look like? But man, we've got three chapters left that are going to tell us that. Jesus is just preparing us for that. To be people who will honestly prepare and live in the covenant is to be people who can then proclaim that covenant to others. Jesus gives us a warning. Thirdly, Jesus gives us the truth. The truth is that you are the light of the world. Truth is, at first and foremost, simply that you represent Jesus Christ. If we think of Jesus being the light, likely we think, if we know the Bible well of John, after all, it's John that has Jesus stand up at the festival of lights and say, I am the light of the world. But Matthew, no less, presents Jesus as the light of the world. After all, this is how he introduces his ministry. That ministry is introduced. Jesus is introduced to say, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And it's important to note that when Matthew equates what Jesus is doing with that prophet, prophecy in Isaiah, he's not talking about Jesus' healing ministry. He's not talking about his teaching. He's talking about Jesus himself. Jesus is the light of the world. And here he looks at us and he says, you are also the light of the world. That Jesus is somehow equating himself with his disciples. That he is embodied by his disciples. They represent him to the world. As much as he means that when he is with them, how much more does he mean that when he departs? The church 
who call themselves by the name of Jesus Christ represent Jesus to the world. This also implies something that's not terribly obvious, I don't think, that we, we are also then responsible to others for it. We, we know this song that goes with this, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It's, a, it's actually a really cute little song. I love to have my kids sing. I love when the kids sing it because I, I like actually the verse where it says, I don't let Satan it out. Like the kids love that. I think it's cute. It's not a bad thing to, to memorize and to, to understand. I think it's right. But it does, unfortunately, highlight the problem that we have, and that is that we think that what Jesus is calling us to here is just to have our little light and to make sure that our light is shining. But again, these guys would have known nothing of spotlights. They would have known nothing of searchlights. They would have known of nothing that had enough power to actually do any sort of lighting on its own out. The only way that they could have possibly have been the light of the world is collectively together. It's important that we realize that what Jesus is doing is saying, you all are the light of the world. There's one light and it's you binding yourselves together. Not just you out there shining for all your worth, but doing it with everyone else. You are responsible. There will be times when, man, evil will be here. There will be times when people will be reviled and have all kinds of evil said of them. There will be times when, when they will doubt. There will be times when they feel worthless. There will be times when they need to be encouraged, when their light is dimming. We are responsible to others so that we collectively will shine with the light of Jesus Christ. Third, not only are you representing Jesus and are you responsible for others, but we need to remember that God has placed us here for this. Each one of these things seems purposeful, right? There's a purpose behind it. It didn't just by accident happen to be that that city was placed on a hill. They didn't, you know, get done building the city and then go, huh, do you know we built this on top of a hill? I was wondering why it was so hard to get logs up there, right? And somebody lights a lamp and puts it on a stand. It didn't just happen. They did it on purpose. God has placed you here for these things. It's true that we might need to kind of go through and talk about what these metaphors are here for. A city on a hill, we, we don't think of cities on hills. They don't, they don't have the same appeal for us. But man, can you imagine being a traveler back then, knowing that darkness was coming? And with darkness, all kinds of evil. You were open to attack from anywhere. And to see a city set on a hill lit up meant peace and security. It meant life for you. It meant safety for you. Even having... Having that lamp in the middle of a room so you could see the faces of your loved ones there with you. You would know that they were safe. You could feel safety from intruders and things like that. God has placed us here. Metaphors work to really imply two very, very strong things for us here. First, the light's got to be absolutely distinct from the dark to have an impact. The Bible only talks about light in reference to the dark. It's only because light is distinct from the darkness that it works. Because if the, if the light starts to look like the darkness, it's not light at all. It has to be distinct from the darkness in order to have an impact on it. We must be different from the darkness that surrounds us. We must stand out. We must live differently. We must walk differently. And there are plenty of people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. 
There are plenty of people who walk around this world saying that they know who Jesus Christ is. They will talk about the gospel. They'll talk about what he has done for them. They, they will point to the truth of the church. But the truth is that they speak the same. They love the same. They make the same distinctions and judgments. And generally, they are indistinguishable from the rest of the world. If light doesn't stand out from the darkness... And friends, it's not light. If we are truly to embody the light of Christ, if we are truly to be him to the world, if we are listening to his voice, if we are walking in his paths, then our lives ought to be so distinct from the world that we will stick out as clearly as a city on a hill, as clearly as a light shining in the darkness. But when churches and when the church looks, acts, and speaks like the rest of the world, we're no longer lights, but we're lost. And certainly we're no longer prophets. We're just parrots of the culture around us. But that brings us to a second thing we absolutely cannot do. We must be in the world to shine to the world. Jesus gives us his light so that we can be in the world, shining with his light to the world. And we return then to the idea of foolishness and stupidity when Jesus says, no one, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket, he means that that's, that's an incredibly dumb thing to do. Who would do that? The idea is that light, in order for it to be light, has to shine out into the darkness. It has to interact with the darkness. If you put that lamp under a basket, the light would be contained in the basket and it does no good. It doesn't help the darkness that surrounds you. We cannot possibly think that what Jesus is calling for us to do is to make ourselves more filled with light by holding ourselves up together, cloistering ourselves, making our own little nests separated and both insulated and isolated from the world. How in the world is doing that ever possible so that we might shine in the world? What good is light if it doesn't overcome the darkness? John says that the light of the world has come into the world and the darkness has not conquered it. If Jesus is to conquer the darkness, if the light of Jesus is to conquer the darkness, then that light has to be unleashed on the darkness. Friends, as much as we don't want the world to form and to frame our lives, we don't want the world to set the objects of our hearts, we don't want it to feed our lusts and our anger, we also cannot hide ourselves under a basket, keeping our own light to ourselves. We must, if we did such a thing, be fools who simply do not know God. Jesus himself came from the very light of heaven to reveal himself as light to the darkness. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. To know Jesus is to embody Jesus, and to embody him is to be a light in the darkness. If we are Jesus' disciples, then we must interact with the dark. Jesus has indeed provided that truth for us. And how we live that out is always going to be up for debate. But we cannot be anything but lights in the world of darkness, distinct from the world, and yet still interacting with it to show the goodness of who Jesus, God, 
who Jesus Christ is and God his Father. And that brings us to the fourth point, which is Jesus gives us a goal. There is a purpose in all of this. The light is there to draw attention to God for the good gifts that he gives to us. There's something brilliant and beautiful about the moon shining against the black of night. It sticks out. The stars give their own kind of light, but nothing quite as beautiful as a, as a full moon. Its luminosity against the blackness of the sky is just beautiful. We remember times in the summer as a kid playing outside late into the night because there's a full moon and you can still kind of see. In the winter, we know how bright the moonlight can be as it reflects off the snow. And even so, while we would praise the moon for its beauty and its picturesque qualities and all the glory that it has, we do well to remember that it isn't lit on its own. The moon is a distant and desolate and empty rock. It's filled with nothing promising or, quite frankly, interesting on its own. And yet, when it is in the right position, it is luminous and it is beautiful, but only because of the light of the sun. And our praise is due not to the moon, but to that which we cannot see which is precisely what Jesus is telling us. You guys are moons. And you will reflect the light of God, but not so that people will praise you, not so that people will, will give you acclaim, fortune, or fame. Well, we are the moon because we don't have a light of our own so that we might show people the truth of the one who does have the light. When we are in the right position, we radiate beautifully the light from which the rest of the world cannot see. They do not know God, they cannot see God. But when we do what is right and good and true, the world will indeed see the light of God shining in us. You'll notice that Jesus begins and ends here. Reward for you in heaven. Praise for God the Father. The same thing that we so typically pray here for our good, and for his glory. So we act. Not, not for our good. We, we do it because Jesus upholds. This is your reward in heaven. That is to motivate us. But not solely for that. We also act because we desire for God our Father to be glorified in heaven. We act so that all might see the glory of God and rejoice at his goodness, that they might praise our Father who is in heaven. Friends, you need to be reminded that you are immensely valuable in the world. Not just because the Father has set his love on you, because that does make you valuable. It makes you incredibly valuable to God. Nothing can ever remove that value from you. But what Jesus is saying is something slightly distinct from that. He is not simply claiming that you are valuable to God. He is claiming quite clearly that you are valuable to the world, that you have good things to offer to the world, that you have help and aid to offer to the world, that the world itself ought to rejoice at the good that you bring to it. For you are holders of a great covenant. You are holders of the truth that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins and been resurrected so that we might be justified before him. 
You are the holders of the gospel, the good news that sins can be forgiven, that people can repent and come back to God, that that God loves all people and does not desire the death of anyone, but would call all people back to him to know forgiveness and mercy and grace. But we can only be precious to the world so long as we remain salt and light. To lose those qualities, to become dull and dim, is to be of absolutely no use, either to the Lord or to the world. Stay salty, uphold the covenant. Stay shining, and let the world behold the glory of the King. And see your works. May they praise our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, may we represent you well on this earth. The world needs to hear of your glory, but it also needs to see it. Who but your people should represent you here? If the lost of this world cannot see you in us, where will they find you? Forgive our failings. Grant us power over sin and set our hearts toward your throne and help us to be the salt and light you have called us to be. We ask these things for our good and for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery.